Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Here is Dr. Michael Rogers, Pastor Emeritus. Tonight I ask you to turn with me to a book that maybe you don't go to too often, the book of Colossians in the middle of the New Testament. There's a quartet of, I call it a quartet of letters there, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. They're each distinct, of course, written to different people, different churches by the Apostle Paul with different things to say, but Christ being the subject very much so of all four letters. You may know that Galatians is sort of the contentious letter because Paul is arguing for justification by faith. The great Reformation truths are stated so well in Galatians. And Philippians is a warm sort of personal book that wraps you up in the love of Christ. And uh, Ephesians, of course, also quite doctrinal. And people like to preach on I've found preachers love Ephesians. Kind of a condensed version of Romans, you might say. But I think of that quartet, the book that gets shortest shrift, perhaps, is Colossians. And I love the letter of Colossians. And uh, part of it, I think, is because Paul was in a completely mellow mood, you might say, as he wrote to these believers. There were no great apostasies or wrong doctrines or uh, errors that had to be stamped out as at Galatia and so on. Colossians, he wrote to people he had not met and would not meet, we believe, uh, before he died. But he has some wonderful things to say to them. So tonight I'm kind of breaking in chapter 1 in roughly the middle at verse 9 as Paul is writing to the Colossians and thanking God for them, telling that he's prayed for them. And that's the main subject he's going to take up here for a number of voices, verses is uh, how he prays and what he prays for these people. I hope maybe we can learn about prayer from this tonight. I'm going to read just verses beginning at 9 through 14 of Colossians 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, having bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, that is, the forgiveness of sins. Tonight, I'd ask you to think about what happens, I'm sure, many times on Sundays or other times that believers gather here at our church facility and come for a service and talk with one another before and after. Or it may happen if you meet a fellow believer out there in the supermarket or some other place during the week. 
After an exchange of greetings, you might, well, you'd say, well, how are things going? How how are you doing? And uh, people will tell you, perhaps in detail or perhaps in very little, uh, how things are happening for them. And you might hear about a crisis or a family problem or an illness. And as you part ways after a brief conversation, because your two carts are literally blocking the supermarket aisle, I was in that situation recently, Uh, you say to that person, I will pray for you. And that, of course, is Christian language of, I love you, I care for you, and I'm going to remember you before God as we part. The question is, will you actually follow through by praying in, in an active intercession, going before God for your friend, perhaps at your formal time of devotion or driving the car or some other time when you think of them, are you actually praying or were you merely voicing a glib and conventional platitude that really didn't mean much? When you see that individual next time, I'm wondering if you would be able to say to them in all sincerity, I have not stopped praying for you. I have not stopped praying for you. You realize what a powerful statement that would be if you can make it in all honesty? Because you're telling that person, well, I remember what you asked me to pray about, and I have prayed, and I'm going on with prayer, and I will go on. I have not stopped, and I won't stop praying for you. That's a powerful thing to be able to say to someone, and unless you're an outright liar... It tells the person that you are one who truly has the heart of Jesus Christ between the two of you. Colossians is a warm and winsome letter, not because Paul writes it with a deep acquaintance with these people. In fact, quite the opposite. He had not met this congregation. He had not been there, not preached there. He had not written to them before. We believe this uh, church community in Colossae was founded by one Epaphras. Epaphras is named here in uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, our faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Obviously, he had ministered to these people, and we think he was uh, their pastor in the sense that a pastor could be named for them. Here's Paul in prison where Epaphras apparently visited and brought word about this church and its growth and its leadership and what challenges it was encountering and so on. But as I alluded to earlier, Paul doesn't have to address anything here like he does with Galatia, where there were strict enemies coming in and ruining the doctrine, and Paul had to say, don't do that, don't listen to them, cast that one out, and so on. And he had to almost vehemently talk about errors. Now, you don't have that kind of talk in this Letter. In fact, if you would, and it's not part of what I'm really bringing out tonight, but if you would just cast your eyes on what exactly follows, and I'm not going to develop it, but what follows the text I read here, beginning at 15, it's an absolutely beautiful doctrinal formation. For he's talking about Christ. For he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him 
and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, I could go on. It would be hard to stop. There's such wonderful doctrine flowing there. A statement about Christ literally involved in the creation and in carrying out God's creation mandate to his people living in the world at that time. So here's a beautiful letter, a friendly letter, a letter conveying love and grace. But I chose to highlight verses 9 to 14. Maybe they aren't the most grandiose doctrinally in this chapter, but they do convey a wonderful sentiment from Paul to these people who he had not met, but whom he really did meet at the throne of God in prayer. He says, from the day we first heard of you, we have not ceased to pray for you. I want you to think about that phrase as a sentiment flowing between Christians tonight. Quite often we find that someone next asks us to pray and maybe they've given us a health report. Isn't that pretty common? You have a friend who's suffering with some ailment or disease or physical challenge or their mother or brother or husband is. And uh, so you want to pray about upcoming surgery or cancer treatments, or you want to pray that Bill would get a new job or that a troubled marriage would somehow find reconciliation. Physical, relational issues dominate our prayer. And that's where, you know, my wife will have all different conversations on a Sunday morning than I have. And afterwards in the car or later in the day, she'll say to me, oh, I talked with so-and-so, and and did you know that surgery's coming up or this or that? And I I learned a whole alternative list to the list I garnered myself that day by talking to other folks. But it, it can be possible very easily that our prayer concerns merely revolve about these crisis kind of things, illness, joblessness, relational problems, marital problems, child raising problems, And we might end up being rather short-sighted in that we're only addressing perhaps surface issues rather than the deeper things that we need to learn to pray about. So I'm going to see the usual three points here tonight and and telling you that in verses 9 to 14 of Colossians 1, by the way, what we actually have is one of those long Pauline sentences, just like in Ephesians, This uh, whole of that passage, 9 to 14, is one sentence in the Greek. But we can divide it into three requests. And here are the three requests. Paul is asking God to fill these newer Christians with a deep knowledge of his will. Secondly, he prays that they might live holy lives before the Lord. And thirdly, he prays that they may learn to give constant thanks to God. Let's look at each of these. The first prayer request in verse 9 is that they might have a wise knowledge of God's true will. We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's implying that there are deeper things than just the request, Bill has cancer, pray for his oncologists to know the right thing to do. Well, certainly pray that by all means. But that doesn't exhaust the kind of things we want to be concerned to pray about. We might think as we begin to pray on any given occasion for any given person that we know exactly what's needed. Well, Bill has cancer. He needs to get rid of it. That's it. I'll pray. Lord, please make Bill's cancer go away. 
Not a wrong thing to pray, of course. But is that all? Paul's implying that we need to have a deeper knowledge of the will of God in spiritual wisdom and deeper understanding so that we wouldn't pray in ignorance or just for the most simplistic things, but for the deeper things that are going on in someone's life. I was struck quite a few years ago by a book written by the prolific author John Piper. And Piper himself had cancer at the time, and he wrote a little book called that I just find is one of the most unforgettably named books I could think of. And the Little Piper book was called Don't Waste Your Cancer. I'm sure some of you have seen it. Don't waste your cancer. What in the world is he saying? Cancer can have a productive, meaningful effect in my life beyond just trying to take my life away and asking God to not let that happen. Piper was implying that, that God might have you in a position of spiritual learning and spiritual growth because of a dread disease which he himself was dealing with at the time he wrote the booklet. If that's a a concern in your life, you might look up Piper's little book, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Look for the deeper things that God is doing in your life here, for the meaning that may be contained in a disease he has allowed to enter your existence We need to have a deeper understanding of things, a deeper knowledge. And by that knowledge, we will come to the place that God wants us to dwell with him. Spiritual ignorance is not bliss, that's for sure. I read one time of a, uh, this is supposed to be real, but I don't know the people it happened to, but a uh, teacher, a rather bold teacher, I would say, wrote a report card uh, on a teenager to the parents, and he dared to say on the report card, uh, Mom and Dad, if ignorance is bliss, your son is going to live a very happy life indeed. Well, ignorance is not bliss in the things that God may be doing in our lives that are happening at a deeper level than just on the, on the surface. Yes, I have a dreaded disease. Well, what, what's God's involvement here? What should I be looking for? What should I be asking him? What am I going to have to endure without getting an explanation? Spiritual ignorance is not bliss. We should look and go deep to find out and pray about the things that we need to try to understand better. I might begin to pray for someone and I would be saying, Lord, here I am, I'm praying for Bob because he shared his crisis with me. And Lord, I have many ideas of what would be right for you to do in Bob's life. So I bring him before you and I know exactly what ought to happen here. Will you purge away my foolish and proud and presumptuous ideas and teach me and Bob what your perfect will is for this man of God? If a doctor is going to cure an illness, he certainly depends on getting a correct diagnosis first, right? And we need right knowledge of what God, our Heavenly Father, is actually doing in our lives. And it quite often is something quite more involved than what we, we might think superficially. We're attuned to the superficial things. Somebody's got the cancer and we say, well, it's very simple what we need to pray for. Heal her. Heal him. That's what the Lord needs to do. Get rid of the cancer. Well, of course, it's a legitimate prayer. But is that all this person needs? 
Or do they perhaps have some preliminary things that need to be settled between them and the Lord, where he might be bending them to worship him or even to know him in the first place? You know, there are people that we meet in our church hallways and are from our neighborhoods and so on, and maybe we assume that because they have some church connection or this church connection, that they are walking with Christ and they have invited Christ to be their Lord and Savior. And they really aren't. They aren't even on first base with the Lord. So we need to pray about that, that their relationship with God through Christ would be a relationship that is revealing to them the works of God. A few Sundays ago, I heard Pastor Walker, along with you, remind us how some men in Mark's gospel came to vandalize a roof. I always thought it was kind of amazing that they didn't ask anybody's permission. They just started taking the roof apart uh, to get healing for their friend who had paralyzed legs. So obviously these men thought they knew what the great answer for this man's life was. He needs to be able to walk. He needs to be able to use those paralyzed legs. But is that really need number one of this man? Jesus demonstrated that there was something else that was need number one. When he spoke to the man and said, son, your sins are forgiven. There wasn't a single person in that house besides Jesus who had thought of that as the great need. And so in a similar way, we might find ourselves praying only about the superficial things, the obvious physical things, and not looking deeper and asking the Lord to reveal work that he wants to do in people's lives. We need to learn to think biblically. How would it be, for example, I've actually done this before with some people, uh, when they tell me of a complicated situation, and I'm a little concerned perhaps whether they're walking in it totally in their own wisdom or with any spiritual wisdom and insight. And I have said before to individuals, let let me suggest something to you, and I'm going to follow through on this, so I hope you will. Why don't we covenant together that we will both read the first 10 Psalms between now and next Sunday? And while you're reading through those Psalms, clearly and thoughtfully to yourself, you're asking the question, what is this Psalm revealing that God might be speaking directly to me about? And I'll ask that. I'll read these 10 Psalms and ask, what, what is God revealing that he needs to speak to Mary about? And, and then I promise to call you next week, next Sunday, and we'll talk about it. See if you learned anything. I've had some really interesting responses on that because people have been given an assignment and they, I've promised them I'm going to follow up. And that's, of course, you have to do that. You have to follow up and not just drop them. And I come a week later and say, well, what did you learn? What did you see as the psalmist was speaking to God that could have been your voice, that could be instructing you? And people have revealed some real interesting things that way. And I've even gone on and say, okay, let's take another week and, and look at 11 through 20, and I'll go as many weeks as you want to pray that God will show you his truth and his intentions and his power and his patience at work in your life through the scripture. First Chronicles 22 has David praying for his son Solomon, who would become king after him. And there David says to Solomon, may the Lord give you discretion 
and understanding so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. David knew from much experience that often what people thought their problem was was only something rather superficial and they needed to dig deeper. And it's in the Word of God where we do that deeper digging. So we go to Scripture to understand the knowledge of God's will before we start blabbering our prayer ideas. Secondly, though, verses 10 and 11 states another petition from Paul. And here he prays, going on, he says, in order that you may live a holy life worthy of the Lord. We pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. This is just an extension of the first one. As you come to understand what God is saying that might apply to you, are you going to be able to act on it and with practical obedience and live with a mindfulness of the worthiness of God and the character of Christ conditioning you and shaping you so that you will honor and obey him and live worthy of him. I've often thought about the issue of giving honor by the behavior of your life to people who are watching you or superintending you. Back in high school, I remember when I I came to a realization of what I would call almost the great separation of myself and many other classmates. I think ninth grade was sort of a critical year where my classmates all seemed to think that they had grown up into uh, some kind of a new phase of life that was uh, indulged with rather freely with alcohol on the weekends. I could hardly believe it. 14-year-olds coming. This is in the 19, early 60s. And uh, I remember a couple of girls who sat near me especially. I thought they were very nice girls and people I said hello to and shared homework assignments and all that. But Monday mornings... In ninth grade, it somehow began to strike me how these girls would be having uh, conferences about what they did Friday and Saturday night. Oh, man, did I ever get blasted at that party. Oh, man, you weren't half as drunk as I was. And and these were girls that I thought, are you serious? You're bragging about how drunk you were? I was really quite sure that probably they were exaggerating the state that they were in, but yet I went to football games and did things where I saw my fellow students sometimes very drunk and staggering around. One particular friend really broke his friendship with me just by his behavior in that way. And I thought, how can they live that way and go home to their parents? I would have said my Christian parents probably had a significant control over me not doing those things by doing nothing other than being the Christian parents that they were. And for me to come home and and be so drunk that I say, oh, wow, Dad, sorry, I'm really blasted tonight, uh, would have been unthinkable to me. I'm not praising myself here. I'm just telling you there was a controlling influence of my parents on my life and on the shame that I know I would have brought to them if I lived the way I was hearing some of these friends talk about. Um, Family honor, you know, I think is something that Many of our Asian-born friends do better at than we do, especially in Korea and Japan. They have strong ideals of pleasing your parents or living 
under your parents' supervision and, and not disgracing your family name. I think uh, outside of Asia, some of these things have really passed away in our culture today. But may we think about, as we pray for others, that they, we would pray that they would live a holy life worthy of the Lord. Even if perhaps Christ has not taken full possession of them, that at least they would walk in his footsteps and become accustomed to the way a Christian walks, even if God hasn't really done his full work of salvation in them yet. I think uh, of, of what I believe we said to each of our kids when we dropped them off at a college campus. Where's my son? There he is over there. I have two, three sons and, and a daughter. And I think with each of them, when we left them off the car, I, boy, parents, you young parents, you haven't gone through this yet. Uh, it's, a, it's a day you don't anticipate. You know, you go through all the college preparation. Where am I going to apply? How am I going to pay for it? What clothes am I going to buy and all this? And then comes that fatal hour when there's your minivan parked among many other minivans as the parents are unloading the kids and you got to get your minivan out of the way because somebody else needs the parking space. And it's like, oh, goodbye, honey. Call. We'll see you. And then you look and your child's walking away from you. I always felt, boy, there ought to be some eloquent speech I could give my sons. But I think, Paul, you can tell me later, I think I said to, to them all in one way or another, remember who you are and remember who's watching out for you, both from heaven and from your home here on earth. Live worthy of the person who you are. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. Think about who this individual belongs to and pray that they would be able to live worthy, walking in honorable steps as a Christian even if they don't perhaps know everything they might want to or need to know as a believer yet. Uh, And remember, too, that in asking that you would live worthy of the Lord, you need his energy, his strength to do that. You're not naturally inclined to that. You're naturally inclined to sin. You need might and power and wisdom and understanding in order to walk worthy of the Lord. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about this, 119 to 20 of Ephesians, he says, God's incomparably great power for us who believe is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ by raising him from the dead. You get that? Paul's saying it's resurrection power that God is going to exercise on your behalf. Easter power by which he brought Jesus back to life is, is same, the, some of the same power that he will use to work in your life if you seek it. And then thirdly, if we look at verses 12 to 14 here, Paul has another intercessory request that he prays for these Colossians people, uh, that, that they as believers might learn to give thanks to the Father. What a disgraceful thing it is that we've allowed thanks to to come and settle upon one Thursday in November and say, oh, okay, had the turkey, I'm done with thanks for the year. My goodness, Paul says, thanks ought to be in the air that you breathe every single day before God, that you may joyfully give thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. We give thanks because all is of grace, 
God's salvation is of grace. You're not deserving of it. And it's a sweet duty to come to the Lord even daily and say, Father, I thank you for breath in my lungs, for sight in my eyes, that I can read your word, for words that come off my tongue where I can give you praise. And now I pray for this friend of mine who shared his need, and I say, Father, let John, as he's told me of this weakness or this problem, glimpse you as his great benefactor day by day. Let him learn to say thank you, Lord, even for the smallest thing, and then soon perhaps he'll thank you even for the greater things in his life. So we've seen Paul here projecting uh, to a young church what I would call a canopy of intercessory prayer over them, like a protective tent over them. And he's given us three ways to pray for fellow believers. One, ask that the one you're praying for would be humbled to discover God's will and have growing wisdom and discernment from his word. Two, Pray that they will apply what they learn to courageously live a holy and obedient life that honors the Lord. And three, ask God on their behalf that they might grow in expressions of daily thankfulness, which will bind them to the Lord and take them even deeper into a knowledge of him. Early in my ministry, I remember I was studying the life of David for preaching purposes and I came upon a verse in 1 Samuel 12, 23 that I'm sure it was in my Bible before. Nobody stole my Bible and wrote this verse in when I wasn't looking, but I hadn't seen it before. 1 Samuel 12, 23. Right at that time, I was ordering some notepaper. This is years ago uh, from the printer, and I used it to write a lot of thank yous and uh, notes of encouragement. By the way, if you don't know this already, you can do all you want with email and texts and all that stuff, and I use that stuff. But let me tell you, people cherish handwritten notes. I can't tell you how many times I hear when I've written a note of word of encouragement, Mary, your song last Sunday blessed us all so much. Thank you for it. You know, I, I could not bother to take the two minutes that it might take to write that note, and I could just leave that alone, but... Wow, I knew that put a bond between Mary and myself, and she knew that her pastor prized her song of praise and thanked her for it. So I was getting some notepaper printed, went to a printer and said, you know, put this name and address at the top of the little sheet, and put this verse at the bottom of the sheet. And it's 1 Samuel twelve twenty three that reads this way. God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That was Samuel when he was retiring. You actually retired, I guess, of the formal office of being God's main prophet to be heard by Israel. And Samuel, in, in his sort of retirement speech, said, well, I won't be your regular prophet all the time from here on, but God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I put that on the bottom of my notepaper, and you wouldn't believe how many scores of people commented and said, gee, I never thought of my pastor sinning by not praying for me. And I said, well, it's, it's, it's on a formal notepaper, but I also try to do it. My heart goes out and wants to pray for you, and I would be sinning if I ever stopped 
doing it. And so I leave you with this thought tonight. What person might you greet next Sunday or sometime when you see them again who has shared something with you even recently and say, now it's got to be sincere. You've got to be speaking the truth. But how many people are there that you could speak to and say, since the last time we met and talked, I have not ceased praying for you. That's your ministry, just as it was for the prophet Samuel. May God bless you in exercising that ministry. Father, we realize that prayer on behalf of others is quite a task and that we should not make glib promises that we don't intend to keep. Lay the burden of others' need upon us in such a way that we would be glad to go to Scripture with them and ask them to perhaps read some passage with us and discuss it, or at least talk through in greater detail the thing that they are burdened by. How many right here in this room could be your ministers to those in discouragement and need and tough times, hurting times? I pray, Lord, that we would be able to make this promise to many in sincerity. God forbid, lest I cease praying for you. Help us, Lord. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.